0: This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Steve? Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, uh, thanks Steve, for inviting me to give a talk. Um, I want to talk about creativity. I'm enamored with it. I'm also very curious about it. Uh, and as it would appear, so too is everyone else. Um, Entrepreneur Magazine offers you five ways creativity leads to productivity. Um, Inc gives you three ways to foster creativity in your team. Forbes has three ways to foster creativity in your organization. There's five ways to keep your team's creativity flowing, six myths of creativity, four ways your office is crushing your creativity, ten tips for managing creative people, the secret to creativity, another eight secrets to creative thinking. Fast Company is offering you 34 secrets. Uh, This is my favorite, one of my favorite. Yellow is known as an optimistic color and can stimulate creativity. And so, lest you don't believe it, here's an infographic from the same article that in fact shows you how yellow is an optimistic color. So designers and people who need to be creative for their job should have color integrated into their workspace. Um, And lest you don't believe it, here's a guy giving you a white power salute. But he's, he's wearing a yellow shirt. Um, so make things yellow is actually the takeaway of the talk, and that's all I have for you today. Uh, yeah, so creativity is a thing. I want to offer you four non-secrets. Um, these are just things that I've accumulated in my career um, that have helped me to foster creativity in my teams. Um, the idea of acknowledging feelings will be sort of uh, central to the way we talk about trust. Um, We'll speak a little bit about taming ambiguity and complexity and how that matters in a creative organization. Um, I'll speak a little bit about letting the team run amok. Um, And then finally, I want to spend the most time speaking about the role of vision in thinking about how creativity uh, sort of permeates your organization. Um, Let's start with the idea of acknowledging feelings. Uh, Everyone is naturally creative. This is the sort of start and finish of every single TED Talk ever. Um, I too was creative at some point in my life. um, I made these when I was six or seven. They're in a series. Uh, My mom sometimes watches videos of me talking and I was doing something around these lines and she said, I still have them. So we still have them in my parents' house. Um, I was very prescient with some of these, Um, for example, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I should have kept going and we could be equally as prescient about other politicians that are coming. Um, I made a thing is sort of a big deal in our field. And I think um, when I watch my team, particularly when I'm mentoring uh, junior designers um, make things, it, it's almost like literally like a, like a exaltation of like, I made this thing, it's, it's cathartic. Um, and I put everything I had into making it. I really focused. I was there late nights. And you know, it wasn't just time and energy. It was like emotional. And I was spent afterwards. And I felt really good. But then um, I sort of recognized that it was hard for me to make, because making things is hard, in fact. And I kind of started to look around. And I saw that everybody else made things, too. And um, my thing's not as good as their thing. right? And I start to sort of feel this. Then I kind of look around some more, and I'm like, actually, you know, their thing's a lot better. Um, My thing is bad. I internalize that, and an unfortunate thing happens next, which is that I feel bad about myself. And I internalize the idea that, in fact, I am bad. When I watch this happen in my students, it's actually very, very vivid. There's a moment where the excitement of having crafted something new into the world leads to this. And you can actually see their body language and their entire demeanor change as a result of this. And unfortunately, I've seen one of two things happen as a result, and one is I give up. And by give up, I literally mean leave the profession. And I've seen designers do this a lot. There's a joke that designers end up opening yoga studios, and there's a reason for the joke. Um, I think at least two or three of my alumni have actually done that. Um, I give up. I'm not doing this anymore. I feel so bad when I make things and compare myself to everyone around me that I'm not, just not going to put up with it anymore. The other thing that I've seen happen a lot is that I entrench. I double down on the thing I made and I fight to the death. And the rationale there is actually sort of bizarrely um, uh, thoughtful. If I can convince you that the thing I made isn't bad, then I can convince myself that in fact I'm not bad. And so I've changed the way that I'm perceiving what I make as a reflection of myself to be less about the problem and less about even the thing and more about me. And so it sort of looks like this. I make a thing and I have a critique and it's a self critique. I'm not critiquing the object. I'm not critiquing the context of the object in the larger sort of story of the design problem. I'm critiquing myself and I'm landing in a really bad place. Because where I'm landing is that I'm bad. And I think that we can actually do something about this, um, potentially by looking at other disciplines, or potentially not. In this case, my friend, uh, Evan, who's a design manager at Apple, says he looks at other disciplines and he says, you know, I I look at a bunch of nurses, are they like, am I inserting the catheter right and then beating themselves up about it all night? And I can empathize with that, sort of lying in bed and going like, man, did I screw up that project or not? Um, Maybe we should actually look at less self-critical disciplines. Um, Maybe not. I think that there's actually our first non-secret around how we can actually start to temper this I am bad is by short-circuiting the entire sort of self-critique process. And we can do it with a fairly well-established methodology of group critique. We can start to say that, yeah, there's this idea that I'm going to make something, and there's going to be criticism of it, but have the criticism come from other people. And that puts a fine point on the fact that it's criticism of the thing. It's not criticism of me. There's rules around a critique. That's probably an entirely separate conversation. But once you start to have that criticism of the thing coming from other people, it starts to lead to new constraints. And constraints are sort of the substance of where new ideas come from we lead to more constraints through more group critique, and ultimately we lead to new iterations. We lead to new things being made. And so the idea of reaching out to my peers becomes a way of advancing my idea, not a way of simply poking at myself and realizing that I'm worse and worse and worse because I look around and I look around and I look around. Central to this is the idea of trust. And so if you've ever run a critique, you realize how very, very quickly it is Uh, apparent that the team has to believe. The team has to trust in each other and in you. And when I talked to my friend Judy, she said, look, in my teams I have to create an environment that's professionally safe. And that's sort of a strange thing to think about in our corporations. We think about being maybe physically safe. I hope not too often. Um, But the idea of a professionally safe environment is really interesting. And so I think our second non-secret there is this idea of focusing on building trust as much as you focus on building craftsmanship and building out skills. Trust is something that you can actually learn. Um, When you think about the work that we do, we go to work and we do things, there's constraints and iteration and critique and all of this stuff I'm speaking of, and then there's like everything else. And everything else is sometimes filled with boring stuff. Maybe it's like objectives and goals and stuff like that, but since it is such a big part of what we do, I think design leaders have come up with ways to start to help our teams build trust. And I think one of the things that we're tempting to do, tempted to do is to fill that extra time with exploratory problems, to do these what-if vision problems. And so the team starts to believe because they're making things that are visionary, not really uh, uh, held down by the constraints of the job. But Mike Krasineski actually says, don't do that. If we have 70% of time with these people hanging around, not doing work, and we're trying to build trust, let's actually have them make a thing. And he says, instead of taking someone that's free and putting them on this what-if project, let's actually have them work on a book. Who doesn't like having a book with pictures of you in it? And I can empathize with that (laughs) because I put myself on the cover of one of my books. Nevertheless. The idea is that you can start to build trust by having your team make a thing about the team. By looking inside and creating an artifact the same way you might make an artifact for consumption by your your customers, but aiming it internally, you can start to build trust amongst the people and then unwrap that, the trust is there for that criticism. And so now I believe in my team I believe that they're gonna give me feedback about what I made, not about me, and I can start to elevate my own perceptions of the thing I made. About feelings. Let's now talk about taming ambiguity. Um, Taming ambiguity, I think, uh, is part and parcel with design because when you start a design problem, this is sort of what's floating in the air. Remember back to the last time you were confronted with a, a sort of clean slate. It's not clean, it's full of things like this. How do you know it will work? It's one of the things I hear from clients pretty much every single time we pitch. The idea of what are the requirements drives me crazy. What's our cloud strategy? You're like, oh my God, what is happening? I'm just overwhelmed and I'm overwhelmed because the problem doesn't have shape yet. There's no form to the thing I'm making and so it's easy to get lost in all of the mud and so um, when I spoke with Kevin, Kevin uh, worked in the at Frog, and he's now a partner at Argo Design, he said artifacts actually give us a framework for starting to manage that complexity for exchanging ideas. An artifact becomes a negotiation. Okay, so we think about the thing we make as that work product. That's the iteration. It unlocks this entire story. Without the thing, we can't have a critique, and without the critique, we can't create new constraints, which lead to another iteration and so on. So something has to spark the whole thing so that this process can play out. And so our next non-secret is as a design leader, it's on you to make the first thing. To roll up your sleeves and create something. There's a couple things that are implied there. First, as a design leader, it means you have to make stuff. And a lot of us are like, man, the last time I actually got to design something was years ago you got to actually be be competent at doing that. Um, Another is that you have to be uh, open to the idea that what you're going to make is dead wrong because it's that first iteration. All you're doing is unlocking momentum of your team. That means you're standing in front of your team, the people you manage on a day-to-day basis saying, I made this, and knowing full well that it's garbage. It doesn't matter. All you're trying to do is to unlock the process. You're living inside of this world of constraints. I like constraints a lot. They're different than requirements. Um, Ben Fullerton said, a constraint comes from an unexpected discovery. Through that process of design, through creation, a requirement is onerous, right? It's placed down on us. Somebody else autocratically says, these are the requirements, the thing it should do. But constraints come from that creative process. When you make something and you look at it and you reflect on it and you critique it, new constraints inform the next iteration. And so think a little bit about the idea of constraints, how they play out on a physical product. Um, this thing is the uh, Charles and Ray Eames plywood chair. It's, it's beautiful, um, and it was innovative, if you'd like, um, because of the way it dealt with the constraints of wood. In this case, actually being able to mold and bend plywood in a way that's, that's beautiful and elegant. Um, And when Charles Eames writes about what went into things like that chair, he talks about constraints. He says one of the few effective keys of design in a designer uh, is the ability for them to recognize as many constraints as possible. This is not behave within as many requirements as possible. It's to start to observe in your work product the things that then impact the next work product. This is the fundamental underscore of how constraints work. By articulating to your team this is the problem we are trying to solve. Again, you unlock that entire set of forward momentum. And so our next sort of non-secret secret is to help your team see and articulate those constraints in order to frame the problem. This is shaping a little bit about what it means to be a creative leader. A creative leader now is about helping the team put boundaries around the thing it is that they're trying to do. It's about understanding where the walls are and giving them enough of a starting point that they can then flex those walls through further, further iteration. Let's talk a little bit about letting them run amok. One of my favorites, uh, as a design leader, um, this is often what my studio looks like. In fact, this was my former studio, and that's a mariachi band playing as loud as they can a happy birthday to one of my staff, Melissa. And we shared an office suite with a number of other offices um, who were not thrilled that there was a mariachi band playing at full sort of volume. Um, this is a button board, that's uh, Matt, actually one of the partners at my, uh, my company, um, and he's wiring and doing some Arduino, you know, stuff. Um, and when you press one of the buttons, uh, you hear something like that in the entire studio. Uh, and we can interchange the sound clips. Um, this is Joni, one of my designers, hard at work in the office. Uh, this is how you make coffee in the office with clearly articulated infographics on how it might work. (laughs) This is um, the thermostat in the studio because someone was too cold, so they took it. (laughs) Uh, I'm showing you these things not to point out like how whimsical and crazy the studio is. Um, There's actually something going on here that's around being permissive. Again, when we talk about this idea of constraints and iteration and critique, they thrive in a certain sort of environment. Uh, They thrive in an environment where inspiration and passion and drive can live and play. And they die, they literally die in the context of rules and requirement and precedent. And every one of those examples I showed you is an example where somebody theoretically broke the rules. Taking the cover off the thermostat is not necessarily something facilities management wants you to do, but if you're cold, take it off. Okay, so then think a little bit about what it means to go do that, to take out those rules, which destroy creativity. It means that as designers, you get to start to take chances. I I spoke with Mike Elbers, one of my former students, who was actually at the BBC before he started his own company, and he was designing the embedded media player for the BBC, and he said to his team, what industries understand video? And the answer was porn. So they did their competitive research in the porn world, and they had pinned up all of the different video players on the wall, and they had blurred out all the, you know, nasty bits, and he said, when you took a couple steps back, you could see everything. (laughs) He didn't ask permission at the BBC if he could put up screenshots of porn players, because the answer probably would have been no. Instead, he just did it. And that's part of the idea of taking these risks, and part of the idea of not having rules. And when I say rules, I don't just mean rules in the context of the design problem. I actually literally mean all of the rules of the institution. Because every single time you say something like, you cannot take the cover off the thermostat, you're also saying, you cannot do other things. There's right and wrong things to do here, and I'm saying what's right and wrong and it reinforces over and over that there's actually rules that constrain the creative process. On the other hand, um, when you establish a culture with no rules, you break an awful lot of glass. There are consequences to your actions. One of them is this email I got from the head of facilities that said, I was in the office today and I saw the thermostat cover was missing again. Stop taking it off. I've reported this to your manager. You need to stop your staff from destroying the building. Right, and so as a design leader, you then need to own the consequences. It's not simply enough to say, like, run amok. Then I have to wear that. And that's part of trying to establish a creative culture. Okay, we talked about feelings and ambiguity and amokness. Let's talk a little bit about what I think is the most important part of this whole story, which is around the idea of driving a creative vision. And uh, typically when I talk about creative vision, the answer or the response is, but I'm not Steve Jobs, I don't have a vision. It's fine. Um, setting a vision doesn't mean you have the answer. And I want to talk through a little bit about what that means by sharing sort of three different uh, ideas in the context of a life experience. Um, Blackboard is one of the largest educational software companies in the world, and I was at a teensy tiny little startup that got eaten by them. And so instead of an 18-person company where I was just kind of winging it, I found myself as the VP of design at a 3,000-person software company that is just beloved by their users. I'm going to guess by anyone who's laughing that you actually had to use their software sometime in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about how I reacted to that trying to help build a creative culture at that organization. And the first thing I want to talk about is giving your team a reason to go to work. And to do that I want to paint a picture for you of what education looks like in the United States. Um, And then you can feel very, very good about where you live. Uh, These are the costs of what it uh, requires to go to college in the United States. Um, If you live in-state, as an example, in the state of Texas, it only costs you, in tuition, $40,000 to go there. Only costs you. And all the way on the private side, you want to go to Harvard, the average is going to be about $134,000. That's uh, how much you can afford a Tesla for, to give you a point of reference. You might just want to get the Tesla. Uh, The sad statistic, however, is that in the United States, 59% of college students graduate In six years, we've even stopped reporting the four-year graduation rate because it's so bad. Okay, so now let's put that into context in our financial story here, which is if you take six years, these are actually the costs that you're going to incur. And suddenly, that Tesla plus the oceanfront view in Grand Bahama that you can buy seems pretty tempting, right? So you can just short-circuit the entire thing and send your kid to the Bahamas. Um, These are crazy. And when we talk to students, and we spend an awful lot of time with students, we see that reflected back to us. Sarah, who is an environmental studies major, said, there is one page on her student loans that explained how they would be forgiven. All it said is, if you die. (laughs) It didn't make me feel great. In the US, you can't bankrupt yourself out of loans. They stick with you. Okay, so again, this is the backdrop upon which uh, all of the higher education tech ed stuff that I'm speaking of lands. And when we do that qualitative research, we don't just find out objective things around the cost. We found out emotions around the facts. The facts are that college students don't see a path to completion. They look at the courses they have in front of them, and they say, I have no idea how I'm getting out of college. Um, A big reason for that is that they can't get into the required classes. In the California Community College uh, system, uh, there's something like 300,000 students who are waitlisted from classes they need in order to graduate. They can't fit it in their schedule. They work, they have kids, they work multiple jobs, they take their kids to sports practice. They don't know what classes to pick, it's confusing about how to actually flow through the system. As a result, they feel pressure and uninspired and overwhelmed and fundamentally, consistently, across the students we talk to, they feel alone. And so this then is the emotional backdrop upon which we find ourselves. And so when we framed the idea of us entering into Blackboard through this startup world, We came up with this idea that there's an opportunity to help students identify their passions, their interests, and then to graduate on time, and then ultimately to get a job. And this is the foundational statement upon which what we made rests. But what's important is the story I just told you. And I just told you some data, and it was rudimentary. I gave you some numbers about pricing, and I gave you a percentage about throughput. And I gave you some emotional stories. And I gave you one quote from one person. I set the backdrop. Ivo Stavorek at Google X says, show them the data. Show them there's a reason to believe. And so the story that I just told is the reason to believe. Use real data to reinforce why their work matters. The more times I tell the story around graduation rates and cost and the way people feel to my team, the more they realize why they're going to work it internalizes for them that what I'm doing is meaningful and it matters. Okay, so this first idea of building a vision is actually around telling the story of the problem. The second is around framing the strategy, not the solution. And this takes a little bit of of nuance in your thinking around it. This is our opportunity statement. Remember, to help college students identify their interests, graduate on time, and get a job. Once we had this sort of structure in place, Um, I tasked one of my designers with coming up with some uh, visuals that helped us tell that story. And I'll walk through just a couple of them quickly. Um, This is a visual he made. It says, students have no mental model of how a short-term lifestyle decision uh, has financial consequences. So they do things that are really dumb. Um, We talked to college students who spent all of their financial aid on beer. You literally get a check in the mail. What a bad idea that is to give an 18-year-old a check for several thousand dollars. Okay. And they make irresponsible and uninformed spending decisions. Okay, so he sketched this and added that insight at the top. Here's another. Students view their academic journey as a linear path, and so they start thinking about their job prospects only when it's too late, when it seems to be too late. They get to junior or senior year, and suddenly it's too late to change your course of study. I've wasted all this time, but, you know, I started as a psychologist, and man, the last thing I want to do now is be a psychologist but tough. Okay, again, he he sort of created this visual for the team to look at another one. Students aren't aware of their passions and interests, and so they don't see a connection between their course of study and a job prospect. They don't even realize they have skills. And then a visualization of sort of the ecosystem. Students feel their academic journey is out of their control, and in many respects, it is. What I'm showing you here are visuals that led to this idea that will help students take control of their academic journey and their educational experience. But what's important here are the visuals, not the idea or the theme. These visuals were created by the designer and my team for us. These would never go to the world. they never go to, the, uh, to users. they never go to customers or purchasers. These were for the team internally, the product manager, the designers, the technologists, to reflect on, to reflect on the process to reflect on the problem and then to start to reflect on where this might go and what might actually be the pathway forward strategically. And we sort of like upsampled that and forgive the uh, sort of over marketing produced style of what I want to show you next. Learning is a lifelong journey towards becoming a contributing, effective and proud member of society. Today's learner is on a journey, a path towards self discovery her journey is shaped by knowledge acquisition. But more importantly, it's about her shared experiences. During this educational journey, she'll develop a sense of self and make informed decisions about her future. OK, so that's enough of that. Uh, but you can start to see how the sketches that Justin on my team made, those bluish sketches, then became part of a larger story. And that larger story was for us also that wasn't intended to be shared with the world. It was for the team to look at. Uh, Mark Ralston, who was the Chief Creative Officer at Frog and started Argo Design, talked about how when you think about your team as a leader, you have to speak to an idea in a way that's sufficiently visualized that they can understand what you're asking for, but not so determinate that you're simply turning them into a set of hands. As a design leader, your challenge is how do I art direct How do I creative direct an idea that's just starting to form in a way that the team can gel on it, can congeal around it and celebrate it, without sitting there and playing marionette with the designer? And necessarily doing it myself. Okay, so the challenge, the opportunity, the non-secret there is this idea of visualizing the strategy just enough to set the trajectory forward. Those sketches in blue took just in maybe three hours four hours in Illustrator. Those weren't high fidelity. The upsample in the video, maybe a little bit longer, maybe three days, four days of work. I mean, it was kind of rudimentary, right? The person walking. But suddenly, that becomes an artifact that visualizes what it is we're doing. And that becomes something that, as a team, we can look at. Remember that idea of creating a book and sticking your face on the cover? That's sort of the in-project version of that same idea of giving the team momentum around the strategy. The last story I want to tell is about a story, telling the retrospective story. I want to spend the most time on this, because I think, uh, if nothing else, this is the most important part of articulating a vision to a leadership team, and then to a sort of set of uh, practitioners in a way that's persuasive. Um, This is the end product of a lot of effort by my team um, and the products teams at Blackboard. This is a personal education planner. Uh, And among other things, it helps college students plan their schedule pick their courses, visualize them in certain ways, and then register for classes. Um, Go back all the way to our sort of understanding of the problem space. We came up with this assertion, a value promise that says we promise to empower students to take control of their educational experience. So let's look at our model here of the idea of constraints, iteration, and critique. Uh, I want to tell you the story of constraints, iteration, critique over and over and over of how we got to that example. Um, and so, take a walk down memory lane for me. Uh, this is at a company called MyEDU, the startup that I was at that got acquired, one of the first products that we had. This is a schedule planner. And it does exactly what you might think, except with a couple bells and whistles. In the top left, you can see I can block out my, my course of study, all the classes I want. Um, but in the bottom, you can actually see I'm selecting course sections and seeing in context the relationship between the professor and the courses I'm thinking of taking. Um, and we had so much statistical data on our site that we were able to then predict how they were gonna grade with some degree of statistical significance. And so students could go on there and say, well, it actually looks like Mr. Smith is getting easier as he ages. (laughs) We had the ability to show you grade history. You could find out things that, you know, he's a little harder in the summer, okay? Not sure how much this is supporting academic goals. But this was the draw for students, and this got us up to about two million college students. And so starting to think about the first step in the journey is crafting this product that builds audience and gets people there. Um, And from that, we developed this idea that we knew stuff about the students and we could visualize it. The more time college students spent with our platform, the more we knew about them. And so we said, well, what if we help them see themselves in a certain way? And we created the MyEDU profile. And what you're seeing here is a a visualization of what it looks like to the students. Um, It's literally LinkedIn for college students. The difference is it looks great. The other big difference is that it helps college students feel accomplished because they go on LinkedIn and they put in like started school 2018 and then that's all that's there. And we've heard them say in research a lot, it makes me feel dumb, I hate it. Makes us feel great, right? Because we list all our accomplishments and like, look at how I'm doing, right? And so we created a profile where, as a college student, you would look great because you've done things. If you were the president of your fraternity, that counts. That shows leadership to somebody. Put that on the profile. Oh, you were the starting quarterback on your team? Put that on the profile because that shows dedication, right? You didn't get there magically. And so we created the visualization that helped you communicate yourself to the world. Um, And then we turned around and sold that data to college recruiters who could give you jobs. Okay, Very similar model to LinkedIn, and this is the way that job searching kind of looked. Um, Up at top there, you can see a visualization of places students might want to live, because they don't know. They don't know what it's like to live in New York City if they grew up in Wyoming, and so we can start to give you some details. Like, hey, actually, the rental price is $3,000, and so what you're used to may not actually work here. Or by the way, your commute is going to be 44 minutes. We were a startup, we had no data content team, so we made up those figures, by the way. Um, so then the next step on our journey was to take sort of everything we learned there and we made a little product that we called uh, Job Genie. I um, what you're seeing here is Job Genie, a very, very simple tool to help college students identify their passions and interests. You started, you said, like, what's interesting to you? Money, power, impact, or freedom? Very, very simple and easy for an 18-year-old to go, like, yeah, I like impact. No, they don't say that. They say, I want money, right? And then they pick and we say, all right, here's a career. And we talk about it, this is a nurse. Um, we, we have some videos of like, what do actual nurses do every day? Because I don't know, I just liked the idea of being a nurse. Um, we have perks and downers. The downers said, you'll have to interact with a lot of gross fluids. <laughs> Again, we had no content team, so I probably wrote that. Um, we had a salary and cost of living calculator. Interesting little side note is that a college student who's been making $12 an hour has no idea $40,000 as a salary is a lot or a little. They've never made a salary. And so a simple calculator that says, actually, that's about this much an hour is super helpful for them. And so we also gave them tools that help them plan out finances and have introspection around what it would mean to live. Hey, you want to be a dancer and live in New York City? Those things are at odds, right? You're not going to make any money. <laughs> OK, great. And you could like say, I want to live like a rock star and have a massive family. And by the way, I want to drive a Lamborghini and not actually have a job. And we could be like, hey, not a great idea. Okay, and then from there, we developed this idea of that personal education planner that I shared with you at the beginning. This is a visualization of how it started to gel a little bit. What you're seeing here is a student selecting their interests, walking through sort of a a fun way of saying, like, these are things that I kind of think that I might be interested in or kind of might be good at. And we'll build a story for you. We'll build a little profile for you around what you might do. And so we can discover a little bit about our personal pathway. And this isn't a recommendation of one career. You should be a nurse. Instead, we're giving them the ability to learn and pivot very quickly around things like majors and skills. Um, In this case, here are some skills that you might want to explore. Okay, well, what is SQL? So I can go into SQL and find out a little bit about it. Um, And I can learn a little bit more than just what are the initials that are on all of these job postings. As an example here, oh, there's demand for it. Where's the demand? Well, it's in New York. What are majors that I can uh, use to learn that skill? And so this is starting to educate students at the same time that it's driving them toward introspection. Let me show you a little bit more of a higher produced version of what this might start to look like.
1: Higher education is an opportunity for students to define a future that's different than their present. But between balancing school, finances, work, and family, there's little time to plan. Having the right degree and skills can be the difference between having a career you love or a job you hate. Students need to develop a plan that aligns with their goals and take the right classes to graduate on time. But with an advisor-to-student ratio of 1 to 300, that can be difficult. Blackboard Planner is a mobile tool that helps students better navigate their educational journey. Students can discover careers based on their interests, make informed decisions with real labor data and job trends from burning glass, learn about careers firsthand through rich road trip nation videos explore degree programs based on interest and coursework track progress to graduation easily communicate with advisors and even schedule classes directly through the integrated course scheduler And the best part? All of Blackboard Planner features live within the BB Student app students already use and love. This makes students more informed, empowered, and better tracked for success. For advisors, we've also built a special view, capturing insight into students' sentiment, academic plans, who's at risk, and more. Blackboard is the market leader in engaging students daily on their educational journey. With decades of experience and countless innovations, Blackboard Planner is the newest tool to set students on the right path quickly, easily, and with as much help as they need. Explore, plan, succeed with Blackboard Planner.
0: So you can see uh, what happens when marketing gets their hands on that idea, but um, starting to see the storyline there. And when I talked to Rachel Hinman, a friend of mine, she said the trickiest part of being a creative creative leader is actually getting people to follow you. It's getting people to sort of want to have groundswell behind your ideas or even if you don't have the ideas of your vision and trajectory. And um, she says that's the trickiest part and I think it's the hardest part. Think a little bit about what I just walked you through to get you to a place where I think hopefully you believe in the planner product. I started with that schedule planner, and I talked a little bit about how we had grade data and the ability to predict if that professor's any good or not. Uh, and then I walked a little bit through this idea of how that led to those tiles, which led to the profile, and that profile led us to a careers business. That led us to that idea of creating Job Genie where you could learn about yourself, and that fundamentally coalesced into that planner product. I told you that story as if it was perfect. And that's the big non secret there, because of course it wasn't. It was a shit show. It was crazy. It was a startup with 18 people, and we tried all sorts of things that didn't work, and people got fired, and then there were layoffs, and we, dev wasn't working, and the server was down, and the, DN, the uh, CDNs needed to be flushed, and then we got the blackboard, and where, how are we gonna fit in this culture, and they didn't believe in the product, and blah, 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 blah. But I didn't tell you all of that. I made this story seem perfect, because when it feels perfect, you feel confidence not only in me as a leader, but in the idea that we're trying to build. And I think that is really, really important. Ultimately, creative leadership is about getting people to follow you on an idea that doesn't yet exist. It's on a pathway that you aren't really sure is going to work, that you're not really sure you're going to get there. And so this is one of these never let them see you sweat moments. The idea here is to make it perfect. And so ultimately, today, we talked about four different things. And these are the four things that, as a creative leader, I'd like you to take away and back into your organizations. The first idea that we spoke about was acknowledging feelings, that design doesn't exist in a context of sort of objective, let's do work. And in fact, it is highly emotional, most of which, uh, for your team, is probably introspective and maybe not very good. We talked about this idea of managing ambiguity and dealing with the idea of complexity and how in a creative organization, you're never really gonna have a firm understanding around all of the parameters. And so as that leader, you take the first swing at the plate. You make something so people can react to it and respond to it. We talked about this idea of letting your team go crazy and break glass and take the thermostats off the wall because once you have no rules, you're reinforcing the idea that people can explore. And we spent some time talking about the idea of driving a vision, Uh, this really um, interesting perspective that you don't have to be the smartest person in the the room to actually drive a vision through your organization. Um, I liked those ideas at Fast Company at the beginning, so I put myself on the cover of Fast Company. (laughs) With 12 ways to manage the chaos of creativity. Um, These are actually the things that we talked about that I'd like you to take away from the, the, the talk. Hold group critiques, build trust, understand why team artifacts matter. Uh, Make a thing, frame the problem and articulate constraints. Spend your time letting your team play by removing hierarchy and minimizing those rules. Uh, Describe the impact, frame the strategy, and fundamentally tell the story and make it perfect. I hope that through that you achieve some creative clarity. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks, Steve. Will you take some questions? Sure. I, I framed that in a way that made it hard for you to say no. No no, I would have um, said no. <laughs> questions for John? Ron, hang on. Hi. Uh, how far do you let the running amok go before you I guess set some boundaries? How how far do you let the running, amok. The running of amok go? Yeah, go. Um, I mean, I think there's multiple perspectives on that. Uh, I let it go as far as it goes. Um, and let the chips fall where they may. Um, and, and I actually feel pretty adamant that that is maybe the way to go. Um, it, it's, uh, any inclination of a rule really does have a material impact on the work. Um, and I'll give you a really strong example. Um, we do a lot of consulting work with financial institutions, um, and the rules there, mostly around legal compliance, are incredible. Um, to say ignore them has all sorts of implications and repercussions. But if you don't say that, you won't get anywhere in terms of innovation, creative exploration, problem uh, exploration. And so there's a tension there, but the tension is resolved by how much you care about maintaining your job. (laughs) I mean that with all seriousness, because as a leader in those contexts, I say break the rules. And let the chips fall where they may mean I may be fired. I have to be okay with that. I really have to internalize the fact that the right thing to do for the customers, for the product, for the vision, for the strategy, for the team, is to put myself in a context where I'm doing the right thing and I bear the consequences. I'm just fine with that. You may not be as a design leader and that's fine. We have very different family circumstances, financial circumstances, but when you think objectively around this idea of letting them play, any, any amount of rules says there are rules. Obviously more rules temper that creative vibe more. Yeah.
1: Hi, I have the microphone so I'm gonna go. Hi. Oh, hi. Um, I'm curious about the, the um, point at the end around making the story perfect and communicating it as as like a beautiful sort of oh. polished artifact, as opposed to like seeing the, with the warts. And my question is, is that a missed opportunity for sharing the fear and the ambiguity and the not knowingness of that process? And um, like, is that not important that people don't know that or is it more important that they feel confident? Because I want people to understand ambiguity and to not fear it too right. much. So yeah, what, what are your thoughts?
0: Okay, so the, the question to paraphrase is, uh, if you make it seem too perfect, maybe you're losing an opportunity for people to see how important the sausage making is, the crazy Okay, um, yeah, I think there's absolute validity in that, and I think it depends on the context in which you're either perfecting it or letting people see the, the, the mess. Um, for me, when I'm trying to set a story strategy for my teams, when I want them to follow me, but I don't wanna be determinants and play you know, puppet master with their hands, I want it to seem perfect because I want them to see where we're going. I want them to see groundswell in a direction. And that perfection of history helps us see that we're making progress. Um, consider the alternative. Um, well, we built that schedule planner and we realized that we were gonna charge for it, so we tried to charge for it, but students do not have any money, so they didn't pay us, so we almost went out of business. We had to lay off 50 people at that point, but then we raised a round from Bain Capital. That allowed us to play, but they wanted to encourage us to sell ads, so we sold ads for Target on the site for ramen, but that didn't seem like a good idea. Um, and then we got acquired, and everybody was really unhappy, um, and so like a bunch of people quit, Like. That, that doesn't inspire confidence in your team to tell that story. They know it's there, they lived it. On the other hand, working with other people in the organization, if they think that everything's going swimmingly, they're gonna expect it to go swimmingly. And I think there it really is important to say things like, uh, yeah, we tried stuff and it didn't work. And here's what happened. And here's why it didn't work and we learned. But then we tried it again and it didn't work. And it's because our process isn't infallible and it's because it's not a science. And so helping them learn that I think is really important, too. Um, for me, the creative leadership part uh, is, is um, I think that's why teams fail, is that they don't have that creative leadership. Um, I think that's the biggest reason. And so all of the other stuff, I sort of um, scratch the itch with in other ways. Thanks. Yeah. Hi, John. Uh, thank you so much for your talk. It's very inspiring. Um, just uh, one clarification. So. Uh, If a requirement is a boundary set by the authority uh, and a constraint is something set by oneself, uh, what is the difference between the two? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't think a constraint is set by yourself. I think it's um, identified by yourself. Uh, I think it comes from the work product. And this gets very sort of like organic very quickly. But when I make something, um, let's take something a little bit more artistic. I throw ceramic pots. um, And so when I make a pot, I have it but I'm not done yet, and so I sort of reflect on it and then I change it, and then I reflect on it and I change it, and that's happening quickly and I'm not uh, conscious of it. It's, that's what mastery is, right? You're reacting implicitly and almost sort of like passively through flow to the thing I'm creating. And each time I change it, new constraints come into play. And the same is true in a creative problem like design or architecture or something uh, of sort of the, the scale we're talking about. Um, there's an author named Donald Schoen, and I think I just screwed up the pronunciation of his last name. He talks about how um, in creativity there's talkback between the artifact and the person making it. And I think that's a very poetic way of talking about how constraints emerge from the stuff I made. Requirement says, I already know. Somebody is important enough and knowledgeable enough to already know. A constraint says, I don't know until I try. And the feedback loop of try, change, try, change is instant when you're sketching, when you're throwing a pot. Um, And so uh, I think that's the biggest delineation, um, is this idea of sort of uh, pre, pre-knowledge versus in-the-moment knowledge. Hi.
1: Hi, John. Um, Thank you. Great talk. Thanks. Um, I really like the four uh, principles. That's great. Cool. Visualizing is definitely a big part of what I have experienced as Mm -hmm. well. Um, In an agile environment, so there's two questions, two points. (laughs) Um, in an agile environment, uh, the ability to do that quite quickly instead of being artifact driven mm-hmm. is one question um, okay. around uh, waiting for an artifact rather than having the ability to do it quite quickly and um, naturally okay. in conversation. And the second point is quite um, uh, a detail point, but in uh-huh. your visualizations, I noticed there were no eyes. Mm-hmm. There was just faces and a mouth Uh and a nose, and I'm assuming that's a deliberate choice, so I'm interested in that. Okay,
0: so I'll do the second question first, which was she noticed that there are no eyeballs in the sketches, (laughs) um, which was an interesting thing to notice that says more about you maybe than me, but um, (laughs) um, it was was on purpose, and um, most of the folks that are doing these quick sketches realize that you're looking for the essence of the idea not all of the um, details of the people participating in it. And so the essence of one of those ideas was she was looking at a bookshelf, um, and I I forget the exact detail, but I think it was around the idea of aging and starting to come into sort of an understanding of my passions, right? Starting to learn about myself, that was important. And so we sort of blur out figuratively all the rest by taking out things like facial uh, characteristics and um, even to some degree like gender, height, size, weight, color, like all of that kind of goes away because it's about the things on the bookshelf or whatever. Um the first question was sort of a thought around um, being you know having agility and then making w- what I think you mean as the pre work, right? It, versus like loose and lean and making stuff up as you go along. Um, I think those are to some degree at odds. Um, this gets super tactical very quickly, but uh, every time that I've had success with agile, whatever the hell it means, we've had a sprint zero. And the sprint zero encompasses like, Let's go talk to some people, and let's go sketch some stuff, and iterate, and play in the mess. And then, ta-da, we're ready to go. And it doesn't mean we made a spec. It means we now have our head around the problem. At the very least, we have the framing statement. Um, and so like, that's always been the way that my design teams have handled, handled Agile. If anybody has any other suggestions, at some point I'd love to hear about them. But thank you. Time for one more question. No. Yeah,
1: Hi, that was really interesting. Uh, I'm curious, when you said you'd take the first crack at, at a design, something to, to have the bear the brunt of the first kind of round of criticism, is that something that you find you've become adept over time, like most designers, I think, to, to self-criticise a little bit, and you run the risk of it becoming too polished before you're ready to put it in front of the team? Mm-hmm. And so how do you make sure that that doesn't become something you're sensitive to before it's kind of... Yeah, and frame it ends up kind of influencing the team too strongly because it's too well-formed. Yeah. How, how do you deal with that?
0: Yeah, so the question was, was around this idea of taking that first swing at the plate, missing somewhat on purpose so that the team can then react to it and change. Um, I've gotten really comfortable and not giving a shit, which, I don't know, is that surprising to some of you? Um, and so I'll make something, and, like, I don't care. I have no ownership on it. I have no sort of sense that, like, my way is right, um, and I'll put it out there, and then I'll help the team sort of critique it. Um, I don't think you can help but have some of your vision for things you make in the thing you make. And I don't go out of my way to be like, let's make this as wrong as possible. Um, but I really think it does come down to, first, um, the ability somebody has to make stuff. Um, like, y- it has to be easy, because otherwise you're going to want to defend what you make so it's so flipping hard to make, right? And so, like, it's fairly, I, like, I have some craft so I can just like, make stuff. Um, and then the second is I have there's no reason for me to be that invested in it. Um, because, I, because, again, I know it's wrong and I trust this process. I trust the creative process. Um, I think that comes through experience and, you know, like, I don't know, most of y'all are seasoned you're not, like, 23 years old and I think the more time that you do projects, the more you screw them up and so then you learn from those, right, and so you learn that you're going to be wrong the first 100 times. That's the process. Cool. Hey, thank you guys very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. It brings us to the end of day one. Wow, fantastic. Thank you. Um, so, uh, not a lot from me, um, but there are a few things just that sort of I want to uh, say and some information before you all leave and go about your merry ways. Firstly, uh, I'd like to thank um, JMC Academy, and Born Digital for the coffee today. Thank you both very, very much. It was much appreciated. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.